Let's take our Bibles and let's locate Mark chapter 14. Let's continue our pilgrimage through this gospel. We come today to a new section, actually. We see Mark dividing into three sections in which Christ Jesus is seen as the Son of God and servant of man in every section. But he's got different uh, focuses, we'll call it. In the first section, he's serving his, uh, the crowds. In the middle section, as he is focused more on the cross, he's serving his brothers and getting them ready for what's coming. And now as we enter chapter 14, uh, the cross is just days away. And so what we see really now is, is Jesus serving his Father's will. And so it kind of goes like that from a crowd perspective to the disciples and now to the Father. And he's looking at the crucifixion. It's just a few days away and it's uh, clearly in view. And this is what begins in Mark 14. And as we're entering this section, one of the first things to occur is his anointing as one who would die for us. This is what we're going to see in this first 11 verses. So to help you get ready for this and to get your mind kind of wrapped around what we're going to read, I want you to think of a time you either received or gave a very extravagant gift. And I realize that's a relative question, a relative term, but just think in your context, when did you receive or give a an extravagant gift. And I'll share with you one that I think Julie and I would both say was an extravagant moment, but it's going to be really odd to you, so just give me some, little, some grace here, all right? Uh, it was about 13 or so years ago, um, and we were in the middle of four kids at home, all playing sports, all involved in youth group, uh, and, so, and so we just had mounds of laundry, like a lot of you would say, man, I can relate to that. And so it was just not only school, but you had extra cleats, you had sweaty clothes from practices. We had multiple practices a day. Uh, you had weekend stuff, then you had youth group stuff and trips and uh, our own schedules and our own clothes and our own jobs. And, and so just, you know, laundry for Julie on a $50 Craigslist washer, which we picked up when we first moved here, was about a two plus day affair. I mean, it was in the basement pretty much all day Monday, all day Tuesday. Sometimes Tuesday night, she'd kind of pop out of there, right? Like, hey, I think I've got things ready for tomorrow. I'll see all these mounds of clothes again next Monday, right? And somewhere in there, this husband who sometimes is oblivious realized, wow, two whole days, there's got to be a better way, right? And it's all about the size of the washer, correct? Correct? I mean, that's kind of the deal there, right? We just had this small little beige, probably, you know, old, Washer, we just picked up off Craigslist when we first moved here, I think. So I just thought, you know, I need to get her a new washer and dryer. And it was near Christmas, so I started saving a little extra. And at Christmas that year, and I know, I know you're not supposed to get your wife anything that plugs in for Valentine's, Christmas, and birthday. But I'll tell you, this was an exception. So I got her the one with all the bells and whistles, large capacity, technological, like, you know, the dryer reads the washer. It cuts down on all the thinking you've got to do. No offense, honey. So just everything was working out really well, right? Uh, by the way, I was going to show you a video of this whole moment of her reaction, but she said, don't you dare do that. So, um, so Christmas morning came. I had this little um, brochure kind of, uh, of the washer and dryer wrapped up. She opened it, and I wish you could have seen her, her expression and her reaction because it was like she was frozen in time for a moment. Her jaw dropped, and literally, her jaw drops, and she just stares at this kind of thing I'd made for her to let her know about a new washer and dryer. She's like, and she's just frozen because she's thinking, this literally saves me hours probably, right? And she's got all these thoughts in her head, and 
then she kind of has a moment of emotion and then she yells out some phrases and she goes berserk over a washer and dryer. And I wasn't quite expecting that reaction, but it let me know something. Man, I hit a nerve and I scored a big one that morning, right? So suddenly I'm feeling very appreciated and loved, to be honest with you. Like, man, this was a good morning. I kind of read this one well. And, and she's feeling, to be honest with you, just very appreciated and loved. And she's thinking of all the benefits and wins of this. And as odd as it may sound to you, we often go back to that Christmas, a washer and dryer, as one of those extravagant moments. Like, man, I didn't think we had the money. But she's like, you must have really just wanted to help me. And she's thinking, thank you. And I'm thinking, thank you. And it's just kind of that moment like, we'll never forget that morning. Even the kids sometimes will rib us about that. Now, I know that sounds weird. But I think a lot of us have moments like that in our life where it's, it could be weird to others. But in your life, it's just a moment of extravagance where someone went above and beyond and you needed it and wanted it and loved it. And so you came together and you realized, wow, there's deep love and appreciation. Well, think of yours and then hear this, whatever you're thinking of, as well as our story, it pales, it fades compared to what we read in Mark 14. Because Mary's extravagant sacrifice blows me away. Can we read about it beginning in verse 3, Mark 14, 3? Here's what the Bible would say to us. That while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. Now, let's just pause there for a moment and kind of just get a sense of what's happening here. This is a, a gathering. They're eating a, a meal. The sense of the phrase reclining at table means they weren't just kind of stopping over for a quick snack. They're taking their time. More than likely, this is Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house. John 12 brings that out, by the way. I believe Simon the leper was probably their father. And so this is a family gathering. Friends are possibly there. There's other uh, relationships that Jesus knew. In the middle of this gathering, Mary brings this alabaster flask of ointment that's very expensive. It probably was a family heirloom passed down through generations. It may have been something she purchased earlier that maybe she uh, had in some way, but I tend to think it was something passed down. It was probably contained in a small kind of bottle with a long neck. And the Bible says that it was worth a lot. The, the phrase very costly we'll read was at least 300 denarii, which means in that culture, it was worth about a, a, day, a year's wage for a day laborer. So let me put that in our context. And I'm not trying to... Um, let me just give you a, con a context uh, currently. Let's just say you work an hourly pay job. It's like 12, 13 bucks an hour. It's not great. It's not bad. Um, but that's kind of a, a day's wage. You just go and you do your job. You come home. Um, that's about $25,000 a year approximately. That's kind of what this would have been perhaps in that day. It's the person who goes to work for that day per hour. And they come home. It's not like a career thing. It's not necessarily a, a high-paying position, but it's no small amount of money. I mean, if you walked in and said, hey, here's an offering today, here's $25,000, that's going some, right? So, so think about it that way. This is an entire year's wage for someone who's been working day after day. 
This is what this was worth. So I tend to think it may have been passed down to her. It's a family heirloom. So while it has a numerical value of, let's say, we'll call it in our culture 25K, the truth is it had a much greater value to her emotionally, culturally, familially, much higher worth. This is what she brings in this flask. And watch this next phrase. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. She didn't just pour it out, saying, well, I could save some for later, or I could hold some back. She breaks the flask, which means nothing could be saved. It all had to be spent on Jesus. So she's indicating that there's nothing I'll hold back from you. As soon as she does this, there were those in the crowd who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? Now, when you hear the phrase said to themselves, it's probably that kind of whisper in a crowd where you can sense the criticism, you can sense the disdain, but they're not courageous enough to, to say it out loud, right? They're just kind of like, can you believe that? That kind of deal, right? They're asking this question about the ointment. They feel like it was a waste for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And so they scolded her. It moves from just kind of quiet criticism to this kind of public rebuke. How embarrassing, right? I mean, um, it, it's just an exposing moment and Jesus comes to her defense. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you'll not always have me. Now understand, church, when he comes to her defense, he's not demeaning helping the poor. Not once in this does Jesus say, hey, don't help the poor. He's actually not the one who brings up the issue of poor people, right? The criticizers bring them up. He's defending her, and what he's doing is not demeaning the poor. He's prioritizing her sacrifice, and I think even his presence. He's saying, I won't be here long, and she's got an extravagant sacrifice to make in light of my departure, so this is of a greater priority. And so he defends her. Now, it's not demeaning the poor. The Bible lays out clearly, we should help the poor. Both Old and New Testaments clearly state that. So our church is and does help the poor, and Christians should. So don't ever think that this means that all oh, the poor don't matter. He's not even saying that. But he is saying, leave her alone because what she's doing in light of my soon departure and her extravagant sacrifice is in order. He says in verse eight that she's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. So here for the first time, the significance of this anointing is brought to light, that it wasn't just an act of worship for no reason, so to speak. This actually had a point to it. It was designed to show and prepare Christ symbolically for what he was about to do. I think Mary knew instinctively and probably from listening to Christ over those three years, he came to die. He came to be a sacrifice for our sins. And so she anoints his body for his burial, meaning she knew he, was come, he had come to die. And then what Jesus says next is so intriguing. Verse nine, I truly say to you, wherever the gospel, don't you think that's interesting that he would use the word for good news after talking about his burial? He says, hey, she's preparing my body for burial. And by the way, wherever this good news is preached, you kind of get the implicit kind of sense that I guess he knows that death's not the end. He says, wherever this good news is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. 
And the proof of that is that you're sitting here today in 2020 reading this. So here's this beautiful story of Mary doing a beautiful thing for the Lord and to the Lord. Extravagantly sacrificing what I think is a family heirloom, for sure a year's worth of wages in this ointment that she anoints his head with, signifying he will die, but man, this is part of the gospel. I think the real key word in these first few verses is the word beautiful, because it's what Jesus says about what she's done. She's done a beautiful thing. Here's what the word means. Listen very carefully. There's two words for beautiful, and in this case, it's the word good as well. They're often used simultaneously in the New Testament. There's the two words for this in the Greek language. One means something's extrinsically, outwardly beautiful. You may say about somebody, they're a good-looking person. You just mean that on the outside, externally, they're appealing to look at. But if you said, oh, they're a good person, you would probably by that mean they have intrinsic value. Like they, they just have a heart. They're internally good. Now we know theologically no one's good. I get that, okay? I'm speaking here of how I use language. And so the word here used is the word for intrinsically um, of value and of worth. In other words, Jesus said of Mary's extravagant sacrifice, she did not need an outside external force to prompt her to do this. She did this thing which is inherently valuable because she knows that what she's doing and to whom she's doing, it has inherent value and worth. She did a beautiful thing because she saw Jesus as beautiful. You see, the sacrifice is always in proportion to the object of the sacrifice, which is why, watch this, when Judas, who's the one who began this critical conversation, we find that in John 12, when Judas began to say, that that's a waste. We could have helped the poor. You know what he was really doing? He was demeaning Jesus by saying, that sacrifice, it's a waste. <laughs> Who did she sacrifice it on? Jesus. He's saying, you're not worth that. Man, that's a staggering assessment, isn't it? And so the truth is, she saw Jesus and knew he was inherently valuable and worthy and beautiful. And so she in turn does an inherently valuable and worthwhile thing. I think all in all, everything considered, we could say this, that the extravagant sacrifice of Mary shows that she alone knew of the inherent worth and beauty of Jesus. She valued who he was and why he came. Now notice what bookends the story of Mary. This story of Mary, it's sandwiched between an account of Judas and his relationship to the chief priests and scribes. Now I think one and two and 10 and 11 go together. Let me show you how. Because we're gonna see the opposite of Mary. You got your Bibles open again? Here's 14, one and two. It was now two days before the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Here are our leaders of the Jewish people who are so afraid of the people, they won't even uh, move on their own evil desires. They, they have such fear of man issues. And so they're trying to find a way under the radar, behind the scenes, to get rid of Jesus. And the way they do that 
is found in verses 10 or 11. You there still? Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, he went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. So here's their answer. How can we cunningly and stealthily get rid of Jesus and kill him? Let's find someone on the inside who will betray him. So Judas hears of this. He goes to them, makes an offer. When they heard it, verse 11 says, they were glad and promised to give him money. See, there's Judas's real heart's desire, isn't it? It's always about the money. He wanted the money here, so he sees Jesus, Jesus as just a useful tool. And the Bible says he seeks an opportunity to betray him from this point forward. This is Judas. In fact, if you go back to verses 3 through 9 and you read John's account of it in John 12, it says clearly that even though Judas spoke up and said, hey, that money could have been used for the poor, it said he was really just covering for his own greed because he held the money bag and he would dip into the bag and take out what he wanted. So he sees 20, we'll call it 25K. Like, man, we could have sold that. And then he says, well, I can't look greedy. So I'll just say we could have given to the poor. He wasn't concerned about the poor. He wanted to fill his own pockets. He's thinking 25,000 in the, in the treasury and then me dipping into that, that's a good uh, commission for me. That's what he's thinking, right? He's a thief. He's greedy. He sees Jesus only as useful for his own agenda. And so he betrays him. And I think Mark does a great job in these 11 verses contrasting one who sees Jesus as beautiful and one who sees Jesus as merely useful. So there's two words I want you to kind of get your hands around this morning. Beautiful versus useful. And when you think about these two words and this story that unfolds, I think we see yet again what Jesus really magnifies as true discipleship. He's communicating what forms the foundation of a relationship with Jesus. He's showing what he really values. And it's this, seeing him as inherently beautiful, not merely personally useful. And watch this, church. When we see Christ as inherently beautiful, intrinsically worthy and valuable, that's when we'll sacrifice, even extravagantly, because it will seem like the least we can do for one so worthy. In fact, that's really our big idea this morning, in a nutshell. When you compare Judas's reaction to Jesus and then Mary's reaction to Jesus, one saw him as beautiful and the other as useful. And we begin to realize that that sacrifice begins when we see Jesus as inherently beautiful, not merely personally useful. As long as Jesus is just a tool, then we'll find ourselves greedy, wanting, leveraging, manipulating. When we see him as beautiful, inherently of great worth and value, we'll sacrifice to any degree for him. So again, two words are in contrast. What are they? Beautiful, useful. So would you say our, kind of our big idea this morning, say it together with me? Sacrifice begins when we see Jesus as inherently beautiful, not merely personally useful. Now, I don't think anybody in this room would disagree with that. I do this a lot with you. I, I, we get to the point of a text and we see it and we rejoice in it. We, we delight in it. And we admit, no one's going to disagree with this. The question we often ask is, okay, so what does that mean and how do I go about that? 
So to help you to that end, I've, I've kind of put together what I call the, the BU spectrum, okay? It stands for what two words? Beautiful and useful. And I've, I've kind of made a spectrum because I, I don't think, and just allow some real transparency here, some, some real um, candor, I, I don't know that people start on one end or the other. We don't just say, man, I just got saved and so I'm completely all in to seeing Christ is inherently beautiful with no problem. I mean, growth is a process, wouldn't you agree? And, it's, and sin is present and sometimes it's a struggle. Selfishness gets its grips on us. And I don't know of really anybody who often just starts off saying, you know what, I'm gonna use Christ as a tool. I'm just gonna leverage him for my own agenda. No one really says that in the church. But I find that we, we often do kind of move along this spectrum to where sometimes we have those days and weeks and months where, man, our worship is deep, our heart is hot for God, we're passionate for him, and, man, you just, like, you're climbing kind of, to, you know, towards seeing Christ as just beautiful more and more, and then there's some of those days when you just feel like, man, you're battling sin for all you've got, right? And Satan's coming at you hard, and temptation's strong. And so, so I tend to think we kind of live on this spectrum, now, I will admit to you, we want to be increasingly moving towards a posture that sees Christ as inherently beautiful, period. I agree with that. We also live in this world of sin and this body of sin that's pulling at us, tempting us. And so we find it at times difficult, which is why we need the Holy Spirit for sure. But it's to the end of helping us see Jesus more and more in an increasing fashion as beautiful, as intrinsically viable, regardless of what he does or doesn't do. He is worthy, period. It's moving towards that end that I want to offer you some, some help today. And so this is why the spectrum exists. And so here's how I would kind of explain it to you briefly. At the two ends, we have these, I think, are textual components. You'll find these in the story of Mary and of Judas. That one who sees Christ inherently beautiful and is moving that direction knows that it's Christ's mission that matters. Mary came with the ointment because she knew he was about to die, didn't she? She wasn't worried about her agenda, her savings account, or her family heirloom, if it was that. She knew Christ was on a mission, she understood it, and she brought her sacrifice in, in a connection to that. So her understanding of his mission prompted her sacrificial action which really is an act of worship. And really, that's what uh, we do. We know God's mission. We sacrifice for it. And those are moments in which worship is deep. The other end of the spectrum is Judas, who sees Christ uh, only as a useful tool for his own mission, for his own agenda. And to protect that agenda, he's always involved in critical analysis. And that's a nice word, okay? <laughs> He's always involved in verbal sabotage because he's got to remove any hurdle, any barrier that might stop his agenda from happening. In this case, man, there's money on the table. We can't let that just go to waste. I could have had a portion of that, but I can't say that, so I'll create a cover. What about the poor? Judas had no concern for the poor. He was just greedy, but that was his cover. And I can assure you there are times, even in 2020, when people act like they're concerned when really they're just greedy. You see, they, they see an opportunity to use Christ perhaps as a, as a useful long pole 
to get their way. It's really all about manipulation with folks like this. My goal is to help you move away from a Judas mentality, a Judas lifestyle, to resist thinking of Christ only as a personally useful tool for your agenda, and instead to see all of his inherent worth and value so that it prompts you to sacrifice that you experience and are engaged in moments of worship that are deep, heartfelt, and genuine. Now you say, well, Todd, how does that happen then? How do we move along that spectrum so that we're growing in our relationship with Christ that is deepening, that we see him in, the, in, in this proper way, that we behold him as intrinsically valuable? Well, I think the two habits that I want to encourage you to embrace are from this very spectrum, and they come right out of the text, okay? So while there could be a number of ways to, uh, that we could employ that would move us along the spectrum to the inherently beautiful aspect, I think the text brings us to, I want to mention those to you. This will be somewhat um, honest. I shouldn't just say it's always honest. This will be somewhat personal and right in our, in our faces. I think it's good for us because we want to do everything possible by the Holy Spirit's power to run from the Judas lifestyle. Amen, church? I mean, we don't want to even come closer, embrace the possibility that we would ever use Jesus for our own ends or agendas. Instead, may we see him in his glory and his majesty and love him, period, for his inherent, intrinsic value and worth. And so I think the two things in the text that I, that I want to bring to you as habits to embrace, uh, actions to employ, that would move you along the spectrum in the right direction would be these. First of all, recalibrate your vision to God's. Let me spend some time here kind of explaining this to you. I think the text shows us clearly that God's mission was paramount to Mary. She knew he was about to die. She brought this expensive ointment and she poured it over his head. She was aware that, that God had a mission he was sending his son, God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, to live among us for 33 years. And that this one, God in the flesh, would die for the sins of mankind. I think maybe she knew what the angel had told Joseph, that you would call him Jesus. He would save his people from their sins. She had heard Jesus teach on this and explain this. She had faith to believe. And it prompted this action. Mary was well aware that God was on a mission and Jesus was his name and saving people from their sins was his aim. And so this really just kind of parameterized it, fenced in all of her actions. She aligned herself to God's mission. I'd remind you this same mission, it's all through the Old Testament. When God called Abraham and then formed the Jewish nation, he said they were to be a light to the Gentiles. It was never God's intention for Israel to become a, a stoic, closed-off people and then become idolatrous. It was his intention that they would be a light to all the nations. This is true in the Gospels. Christ was consistently calling people to believe from all kinds of nationalities and ethnicities. Christ's last words, in fact, are repeated in every single gospel 
and the book of Acts, which is why we remind you, his last words ought to be our first concern. And those words involved making disciples of all nations. It's recorded throughout the epistles and Revelation concludes the biblical account of God's timeline with people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue gathered around their throne worshiping God. Here's what's God's mission. Redeeming people to worship him. That's God's mission. I think Mary knew that. She was, she was adjusting her life and her sacrifice, her offering to fit that mission. My question to you is this. Are you on that mission? Am I on that mission? Or am I more about my own mission? Am I more about my comfort, my convenience, you know, my schedule, my preferences? I think as long as we think our mission is more important than God's, we're going to lean towards Christ being personally useful. Like maybe we could win a, an election if we act like we love Jesus. Maybe we could increase our income, get a better job. Those are all ways that he just is like useful. He's a tool. He's not your treasure. But when he's your treasure, and you see his mission is paramount, the making of disciples who make disciples who make disciples of all nations. Now, I want to remind you of something here. As I was thinking this through this week, it, it became increasingly clear to me that I have an immense amount of gratitude for the way that my parents raised me in the church they chose to be in. Because, and I think I've shared this a lot, I, have no, I don't really hide much about the way I grew up, I think it's, a, it's an example a lot of times of how the Lord uses things. Uh, God took our family to Chattanooga, put us in a fantastic church for most of my life, a church that platformed and emphasized missions, evangelism, strong Bible teaching, uh, energetic worship, and we could go down the list. I, I'm just thankful that they weren't ashamed or afraid to call our church to action. They knew the mission. And you know, admittedly, there's different ways to get to the end of the mission, right? So in our church growing up, we had four to 500 missionaries we supported. We didn't give a lot to all of them, okay? Probably not the best way to do it. You could take a few missionaries and invest heavily. That's kind of our practice here. And even that term is relative. Some think a few would be like two or three. Some think a few is 12. I tend to see few, maybe like 12, 15. We have 12 right now. We invest heavily in them. So, so I don't want to argue about some of those minor things. I want to say this. I, I realized how thankful I am for a church that emphasized God's mission because it, it just took root in me year after year after year after year. And you know what sprouted when I became an adult? All the seeds that church had planted. I mean, most Saturday mornings, we were asked to show up at, uh, to our church and we'd go out passing out tracts or witnessing. And did it seem awkward at times? It did. But you're a ninth grader on the streets of a housing project trying to pass out tracts, inviting folks to church. You know, week after week, there were things about it we didn't like sometimes. There were things we were critical about. But in the end, even amidst the, the, the mistakes and maybe the unintended consequences of some of those efforts, man, when I left there, it was clear to me what we were to be about, making disciples. And I want you to hear something that, I don't want there to be any confusion. The, the, the bell this church must ring consistently is that God is about making disciples of all nations. For some of you, they live right next door to you. Amen. 
I hope you're aware of that and you're reaching out. You have a life of hospitality and evangelism. For some, that means they're gonna go across the ocean. We need all types, amen? We need senders and we need goers. What we have to have among all of them is a heart for making disciples who make disciples of all nations. It's a reproducing thing we're in here. And I don't ever wanna grow weary or cold of sounding that clarion call, of blowing that trumpet. Our mission here at First Family, I'm just gonna kind of stay here for a little bit, uh, is to celebrate, is to develop devoted disciples who celebrate, go, grow, and serve the glory of God. We said since day one, there are three habits that ought to typify every believer. They celebrate the gospel, they grow in community, and they serve the mission. We say it like this in a more practical term. You have to celebrate at a weekend service, grow in a small group, and serve on a team. In other words, believers who are growing towards the inherently beautiful side of the spectrum, they're still not going to be committed to their body, prioritizing worship. They're going to have a small group, and they're going to find a way to serve. That's just going to be their pattern over a long period of time. When that occurs, what we find is that they begin to reproduce themselves in others. And so our vision here has always been this. Several years ago, the elders put this together. It's been our vision. And we don't say it a lot out loud because it's more of the under-the-radar foundation. But we want to become a people ready to reproduce. That's always been our call. Since day one, we, we would pray, God, will you make us a church-planting church? It took a lot of time for that framework to get built, I think. We've seen some really good progress lately, the last five to seven years, even on sending some of our own as missionaries. But whether it's planters, whether it's pastors, whether it's missionaries, in our own area, you know, a, a heart for evangelism. And what we want to see here is this loud trumpet call to have a, a, a body of people mobilized after God's mission. A people who are celebrating, growing, and serving, becoming ready to reproduce. And so that fleshes out in a number of ways. You may have events on the calendar, kind of groups and emphases and different series. They are aimed at at the same thing. They look different on the, on the outside, so to speak. All kind of different activities and groups, from children to teens to women's and men's. Those are all okay. But they're all tied to the same mission and vision. And those are all tied to God's heartbeat to see people come to faith in Christ. Matured. And then taught how to bring other people to Christ. That's the point. So if you hear anything this morning, hear this. You won't sacrifice for a organizational reason. But you will sacrifice for a universal cause. And God's heartbeat to make disciples of all nations is the universal call to every believer. It's what we should sacrifice for. Recalibrate your vision to God's. Now, when I say that, the reason I think some churches find that hard is because we have collected a group of people who really are more inclined and more attuned to the American dream than they are the biblical mission. Can I speak to you just very plainly for a bit? And so I think it takes a lot of time often to uproot the American dream and replace it with God's biblical mission. And you get 18, 20 years of the American dream just pumped into your children. You, you just don't get that out in six months. All right? Now, listen very carefully. 
I'm not saying the American dream in, in every single way is prohibited. A lot of you are like our family. We, you, your kids are involved in sports. I told you about our own situation with multiple teams and mounds of laundry. I don't think those are prohibited, but I do think this, and I think the Bible would teach this, those should be prioritized. And the problem we find in many landscapes in the American culture is the American dream is prioritized over God's biblical mission. And so we have children at 18, 20, 22 who think the world revolves around them because that's exactly what their parents did for 18 years instead of revolving the world around God's mission. I know I'm stepping on your toes. I'm probably speaking to you plainly, but it's, it's, it's important for you to hear that the reason perhaps you're not sacrificing in an extravagant way is because your vision is not calibrated to God's. You see no reason to sacrifice. You don't really think he's that worthy, that he's inherently beautiful. Your mission matters more than his. That's a problem. How would you know that kind of person? Just some diagnostic questions for you. While I'm on thin ice, I'll just go ahead and kind of get these out to you. When you hear us talk about who's your one, asking you to take a card, just write one name that you could pray for. When that seems odd to you, when that seems like weird, uh, hello, maybe the problem is not the mission, the problem is with your alignment to it. Now, if you're saying, Todd, I've already got a method I use to pray for lost people, great, I'm not talking about that. I'm speaking of the person who sees an opportunity, a simple tool to remember lost people by and to pray for them and then garner the support of their church to pray and then criticizes and says, I think that's dumb. Are you, are you following me? Are you tracking? If you think things like who's your one is just dumb, the problem's not the mission. The problem's your alignment to it. If you think that it's kind of weird that we would ask you at 435 every day just to stop for a moment and pray that God would lift your eyes to see the fields white to harvest. John 435, this is what the verse says. Is we just kind of adopted a 435 mindset around here. Every day at 435, my phone goes off. I take 10 seconds and say, God, around me today are people who don't know you. Would you keep my eyes focused on their need of you? And then I'm done. And when someone says, that's ridiculous. The problem's not the mission but your alignment to it. If you've got another tool, I'm happy for you, hallelujah. But if you're criticizing and trying to sabotage what's working for some to help them have God's heartbeat, hey, just be honest. You see Jesus more as useful than you do beautiful. When you think it's odd that we'd plant churches or send missionaries across the ocean to areas that have no access to the gospel, when you think that, man, we're investing how much money in our missions? Some of us think it's small. You think it's way too much. Listen, in all polite pastoral honesty, the problem's not the mission. The problem's your alignment to it. You see, I, I have said this convictionally and believe it wholeheartedly and would ask you to board this train with me. Let's continue to make his mission, excuse me, his passion our mission. And his passion, without a doubt, from Genesis to Revelation, is to save a people unto himself from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. I want to be about that. I know you do too. So let's continue to blow that trumpet, can we? Let's raise kids in that culture 
Let's have marriages with that as their aim. Let's make our decisions about career and vocation and finances with that as our goal. Because that's aligning and recalibrating our mission to his. One more habit I want to draw from this text as I wrap things up. Here's what I would suggest would be a good way to keep yourself moving towards Christ being beautiful, not just useful. Refuse to criticize and instead rejoice. You know, both of these are found in this text, aren't they? Mary aligned her life and sacrifice and decisions based on Christ's mission. And then Judas, man, he just found the opportunity to kind of come in verbally and try to sabotage the whole thing. He's going to analyze, give you the right perspective, right? When really it's just a cover for his own greed. I'm reminded here that if we want to move towards seeing Christ inherently beautiful and find ourselves deepening our walk with the Savior, then we need to put a watch over our tongues. We need to speak words that are edifying. Words that build up, Paul would say in Ephesians, and not sabotage God's work going on all around us. Now listen very carefully to me here. I'm not speaking of the type of conversation where there's humble and honest disagreement. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the kind of one-on-one conversation where you go to someone and say, hey, can we work something out? And that's biblical as well, amen? We should engage in some of those things. I'm not speaking of any type of constructive analysis where there's humility. I'm not talking about that. So if, if you hear that, you're hearing me wrong. What I'm talking about is verbal sabotage, arrogant backbiting that's disguised like concern. You've heard it like this one-on-one, like, hey, I need you to pray for, for my wife. And then you just kind of tell your friend about how bad you think your wife is. Or vice versa. I need you to pray for my husband. It's kind of disguised like a concern, like a prayer request, but then you just kind of lay out your husband and you flay him. You see, that happens in more ways than, than you and I want to admit. And when criticism is a cover, you're beyond the realm of honest even disagreeing conversation because it's not constructive at all. You're actually now into the deep waters, the dark waters of deception. You're pretending something when you really don't mean it and that's actually very destructive. So I want to call on all of us to really watch our tongues, to guard our lips and to ask ourselves, is what I'm going to say really helpful and beneficial or is it actually just a cover for trying to get my own way and move things to my agenda? Am I really just manipulating things verbally? In thinking this through, uh, I shared this with our elders Tuesday morning. I think one of the deepest regrets I have is how I acted this way for about a year or so while I was in college. And I was on staff at our church. I was junior high youth pastor. And I had a couple of, I started that way when I was a sophomore. And I think, you know, a year and a half or so, just some really good results, some good ministry there. And I just got proud. I got really arrogant. I began to be resentful towards some other things uh, in the college. I began to have a superior attitude about the church opposed to the college. And it came out of my words and my actions. And I, and I just began to be very nitpicky. I was very critical. I disguised it like it was an analysis, like, like I knew how to run the church. I didn't know squat. 
okay? I didn't know anything. I was just a college sophomore, junior. Um, but I felt like I would know more than our elders and our pastors. And, and it was just, I'm very ashamed, I'll be honest with you. I know God's forgiven me. Theologically, I'm good there, all right? But I think about the, that year and a half. I really do. I have a lot of remorse of how I treated people who were in spiritual authority over me, who were looking out for my soul, and the arrogance I must have displayed many times in public. When I look back at that, um, I realize what was happening is I, I wasn't really destroying my church. And in some ways, perhaps, but what I was really doing was destroying my own spiritual health and revealing my own spiritual immaturity. I've, I've come to realize that that's what criticism does. Criticism is like a saw. In fact, I often call it the seesaw. And what criticism does is this. You think you're sawing a branch to get rid of something that's no longer needed or that could be better, but you're sawing behind you. And when the branch falls, you fall with it. It's the destructive nature of criticism. So I want to be off the seesaw, so to speak. This is what Galatians 5 says, verse 15. He says, be careful that you don't bite and pick at each other. Because the end result of that is that you'll be consumed of one another. See what he says there? If you just keep being nitpicky, arrogantly critical, verbally sabotaging, you just kind of yank, 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 yank. The end result is that you get eaten alive with that. I experienced that in college a bit. I remember when God just convicted me and brought me through that and out of that. I'm so thankful um, that that was not going to be the long-term style of of ministry with me. But I do have some serious remorse over that. And so I want to warn you, be very careful of your language because criticism often reveals things about us. And if we're just using it to, to cover, you know, it sounds like concern, but it's really not, or to cover for deeper issues. So I'd say two things will help you move along towards seeing Christ as beautiful. Align your life to God's vision, his mission, and then refuse to criticize and instead rejoice. You know, the Bible says to weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. So regardless of your preference sometimes, just enter into someone's joy or sympathize with their pain. Your opinion really may not matter at times. Just be there in the moment with them. Be a body. This is good for all of us to hear. I think together these two actions will move us towards a life of sacrifice. A life of sacrifice because you begin to see Jesus as inherently beautiful, not merely personally useful. And that is our big idea, right? So here's two steps to help you get there. To where you see Jesus as inherently, intrinsically valuable just like Mary did. And you're not seeing him like Judas did, as someone just personally useful. He'll get me what I need. Let me close with this last question. I've been asking myself this, and I don't have an answer quite yet, and so I'm under a lot of conviction about it. And when I experienced those moments, I always said to myself, let's get the church in on this for sure. When's the last time you extravagantly sacrificed for Jesus? It could be a financial question, but it may not be. 
So don't think I'm speaking of money only. But when is the last time you extravagantly sacrificed for Jesus? In my thoughts about that and in my like, yeah, when was that? It's very revealing to realize maybe I don't see him as beautiful as I think I do. Because if I did, I think I could probably recall a time quicker than I'm able to. Is that okay to admit to you? Is that okay to challenge you with? Some of you may say, well, Todd, I do that every week. I give, and I'm not discounting that, but I don't think when Mary brought this ointment, she was probably thinking about her weekly gift to the temple. There's something in this that's extravagant. It's beyond understanding. It's way out there. As I thought, Todd, when's the last time you lived this way? I realized that maybe my lack of ability to answer that well might actually be indicative that Maybe I don't see Jesus as the deep treasure of my life like I think I do. Oh, I want that desperately. I long for that. But in this body of sin, in this culture of sin, man, sometimes I feel the clutches of it all around me. Do you feel that way? So that's just one last question. When's the last time you extravagantly sacrificed? That will tell you a lot about where you are on the spectrum. And if you say, man, that's what I long for, then let's commit to adopting and aligning our life to God's mission and really just refusing to criticize. And suddenly, I I think we'll find ourselves moving towards this end of seeing Christ as intrinsically, inherently beautiful and worthwhile and the priceless treasure of our life, the deepest joy of our life. And then we're called to sacrifice. It will seem like the least we can do. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.